Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. On the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. So starting back in 2018, there was a new television show where Jim Carrey, the old actor, came back in a serious role, and the show was entitled Kidding. And in the show, Carrey plays this beloved um, TV host of a children's show. His, his, the name of his character is Jeff Piccarillo, and he, but he plays within the show this man, Mr. Pickles, who again hosts this PBS show that's been on the air for a long time. It's very successful, very positive, very encouraging. But then something happens in Jeff Piccarillo's life, something tragic. One of his twin sons is killed in a car accident, and his marriage and his family is falling apart. And he decides that he wants to do an episode of his show, Mr. Pickles' Puppet Time. He wants to do that in a serious way about grief and death. And all the producers say, no, no, we, we can't do this. This is, gonna, this is not the feel-good vibe of the children's show. But he insists, so they air it, so they uh, record the episode, and then right before it airs, the, the network and the producers substitute a rerun and they, because they refuse to show this episode. And the result, it sends Jim Carrey's character into a deeper tailspin. Now, this tension, this opposition to airing a children's show that deals with death, I think is actually very revealing about something broader that has happened in our modern Western culture, particularly that is the systematic avoidance of death, the systematic avoidance of talking about and paying attention to death. Of course, death is inevitable. It's the one universal thing that ties every single human together, regardless of race or education or virtue or vice or success or wealth or not, appearance, personality type. Every human dies. It's the ultimate end. So we can't really avoid it. Yet 
something really remarkable has happened in our culture. Despite death being the fate of all of us, death has actually become very largely removed from our daily thought and experience, from our consciousness. We might talk about famous tragic deaths or hear about statistics of people dying from various things, but it's all often very abstract and not really connected to what our daily experience is like. Unless today you're an ER doctor or a nursing home worker probably or a, or a funeral home director, you probably don't think about death in a very sort of daily basis. And most of us have actually never seen someone die. But in most of human history, in most of humans' experience today throughout the world, children and adults, parents and grandparents dying was actually a regular part of life, something that everyone faced on a daily basis and had to think about. Now, nowadays, because of hospitals and nursing homes, which are great things, we, death is actually pretty removed from our regular lives. It's, it's actually put into this kind of separate, unreal place. And again, we only think about it reluctantly or rarely. And you know, if you think about it, you may know that it used to be that when someone died, it was usually in your house, and then even the wake or the visitation was typically in your own home. Now we've created this separate fake house called a funeral home to kind of keep death one step removed from our lives. Now I bring this up because I'm convinced that our lack of thinking and paying attention to death in a personal way, our systematic avoidance of our own mortality is actually harmful to our lives. I don't mean that we should be obsessively morbid about death, but that a greater awareness of our own mortality actually refines us, refines our character in a very important way. We don't like to think about death because it's so uncomfortable and it's fearful Yet it is our fate, and so we need to pay attention to it. Now, I want you to hold that thought in your mind for a minute. I want you to actually put it over on one part of your brain. Let's say put it in the northwest corner of your brain for a minute, if you can, all right? And leave it there for a moment, because I want to ask you something totally different now. Think of a time when you've really screwed up. Maybe you said something stupid or hurtful. Maybe you failed to do something that you said you were going to do that was really important. Maybe you were harsh or mean. Maybe you fell into some sin and you can see its consequences barreling towards you now. You fill in the blank. And I know everything in us wants to avoid thinking about these. And you're thinking, wow, I'm so glad I came to church. You're talking about death and, and feeling horrible about things. But here's the question. When that happens... Not if, but when that happens and you feel the shame and the guilt and the fear, the embarrassment, what do you need in that moment? What do you need that can actually restore your sense of peace and equilibrium, your, your shalom in your heart, the, the ability even just to move forward when you feel so overwhelmed by guilt and shame and embarrassment? Recently, I was a little harsh in my speech with someone, and I didn't realize it really at the time, but when it came back to me that the other person was, was hurt by this, I just felt so embarrassed, so 
devastated, so ashamed that it took me like a couple of hours just to think about anything else. It was just so much. What did I need in that moment? What do you need when you're overwhelmed with your wrongdoing? Well, the answer is that we need forgiveness. We need to actually know that we can have the freedom of actually being freed from that somehow to actually be forgiven, that that sin or mistake is somehow removed. And it's hard to know how, but that is what we actually need in that moment. Now, I want you to let that thought sit in your brain for a moment as well. Let's say, let's put it in the southeastern corner of your brain. Okay, so we have two different things going on here. I talked about death. I talked about forgiveness. Now today, as we continue in our preaching through the gospel of Matthew, we have reached, finally, after a few years of preaching Matthew in and out, we have finally reached the final stage of this amazing biographical story of Jesus. We've reached the the final turn. And what's going to happen in our text today, all the way through the end of the book in chapter 28, which will finish the week after Easter, All of this happens just in the last few days of Jesus' life, and we have reached finally the end of the story. And our text for today is truly one of the most important points of the entire Bible, but we'll see it's actually a very, very dark text. It's a text that if we read it, makes us feel very uncomfortable because it constantly talks about death. The whole story is centered around the gloom and the evil of someone betraying a friend to death, burial, and frank talk about a bloody death. All these things that we don't want to talk about, that we avoid thinking about. And at the same time, there's also another theme that speaks to our greatest need in this text, the idea of forgiveness. And what I want to do show you just the next, you know, several minutes here is show you how this one story brings together these two very separate ideas of death, this thing we're afraid of, and forgiveness, this thing we need. So if you have a Bible, I'd like to ask you to turn to Matthew 26. You can pull it up on your phone, just type in Matthew 26, or we'll put some words on the screen, or you might have a pew Bible there in front of you, or you can... Just follow along on the screen as well. And so we're going to cover 29 verses in chapter 26. We had some of them read. I'm going to go through it as quickly as I can, or pretty quickly to go through. Can't say everything I would like to say about these stories because I want to really land us at the end of the story. And right at the beginning of chapter 26, Matthew doesn't waste any time. Look at what he says in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Again, we have now arrived at the final stage of Jesus' ministry. All throughout Matthew, if you go back and read Matthew, if you've been here for our sermon series, you'll see that Jesus is doing a bunch of things, and he's also teaching. Matthew particularly wants us to see that Jesus is this master-wise teacher who teaches and preaches about the kingdom of God. And now, in 26.1, this is a really important marker. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, this is the end of his teaching ministry, and look now what the last stage of his ministry is going to look like. Again, that the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So right here at the beginning, at the final stage of the, of the whole story, we're put right in front of us without reservation that this is going to be about death. 
Jesus is going to be betrayed and killed, and not just any death, but one of the worst human deaths you can imagine, suffocating while being nailed to a a piece of wood publicly. Now, that dark tone of death continues in the next verses. If you look ahead there, starting in verse 3, the religious leaders, they've been opposed to Jesus for his whole ministry, and now they're finally wanting to get rid of him. Look at what it says in verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. This is their plan. Don't worry about the fact that they're supposed to be God's representatives on earth. Their plan as the leaders, the religious leaders, is to kill Jesus and to find some way to do it. And then, unexpectedly to them, they get an opportunity that they could not have imagined could be any better from verse 14, you'll see. One of Jesus' own friends decides to betray him. Look at verse 14. Then one of the 12, not just general disciples, one of the actual 12 chosen disciples, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, And from that time on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, all of that, that betrayal, arrest, trial, crucifixion, all of that is what we're going to see in the next couple of weeks or next several sermons, actually, in chapters 26 and 27. This is how this story is going to unfold. But in the meanwhile, what I want to concentrate on is that there are two meals that happen before all that stuff happens. There are two meals that happen in the rest of chapter 26, verses 1 to 29. Two meals that Jesus is there and crucial things happen. Look at the first meal back in verse 6. Now, while Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, which probably this is someone that had leprosy that Jesus healed, and now he is there in his home, a woman came to him, came to Jesus with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. And when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing. The poor you will always have with you, but you, will, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. <laughs> now, whenever I read this story, just reading through Matthew and getting to this point, I always just think the poor disciples. Because if you, if you follow through Matthew, you'll see that they are trying so hard to understand Jesus. And at every point, they can never quite figure out what he wants them to do. They keep putting their feet in their mouths and they keep misunderstanding him. And here, they must have thought, we finally got it. Like we got Jesus' idea that we're supposed to care for the poor. And so when this woman does this, their reaction is, this is horrible. They, we should have been you know, caring for the poor and sold this, etc." And even then, they still don't understand that there's something deeper going on that Jesus wants to teach them. And again, notice it all concerns his death. This event, he says, is preparing him for his burial. If you know what it was like in the ancient world, especially in the Mediterranean area, when someone died a typical way, if there was any kind of means, you would 
in effect, embalmed the body by covering it with spices and perfumes. And this is a typical thing they did. As we're going to see, this is what's going to happen right after Jesus' death just a few days later. And what Jesus is saying in a very uncomfortable way, I want you to feel the weight of this. He's saying, what has just happened at this dinner party? This woman has, in effect, embalmed me. She has prepared me for burial. This is how uncomfortable and how straightforward Jesus is about death as the theme of what he wants them to understand. And this faith-filled woman, this is probably her most valuable possession. This is like cashing in her whole retirement plan. She, out of great faith, we don't even know her name, but she, out of great faith, does this act that Jesus says is beautiful. And I always love to think that verse 13 is fulfilled again today. That as he says, that whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, We'll remember this, and so too here again. In Louisville, Kentucky, in 2021, we're remembering this beautiful act of faith of this nameless woman who prepares Jesus for his burial. That's just the first of the two meals. Now we're running up to the second meal and look at verse 17. Now on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And he replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near and I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. And when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. So here we are. This is Jesus' very last night with his friends and his disciples before he's going to be arrested and tried and killed. And this last meal, what we call the Last Supper, Jesus is celebrating a very important Jewish holiday, the most important Jewish holiday called the Passover. Now, what is the Passover? Well, it is the most important Jewish holiday because it celebrates the single most defining moment of the people of Israel, of the Jewish people. It goes back to the book of Exodus when God rescued his people. If you know the story, the people of Israel were in bondage. They were slaves. They were a slave class in Egypt. And the Exodus tells the story of how God came and rescued them through miraculous powers through Moses. And how it happens is, God sends 10 plagues to kind of wear down Pharaoh and to finally convince him to let the people go. And the 10th plague was that that death was going to come through Egypt and only those who believed in God would put blood over their doorpost on that night so that when death came through Egypt, it would pass over those who showed faith by having blood. And, And those who did not have that symbol the firstborn sons all throughout Egypt died. And so it's called Passover, referring to this. And then what happens is finally the Pharaoh says, okay, get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. This is too much. So all the Israelites go. And as they're going, you may know the story, Pharaoh and his army decide to come and try to kill them. God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites go through it. And then the sea comes back down on and kills the Pharaoh and all his army. So this, so then what happens is God shows up, meets his people in the wilderness, and makes a covenant with them. A covenant, which is a relationship. And the instructions for that relationship are called Torah. That's why we call it the Torah. These are the instructions for the relationship, that, the new relationship that God makes with humanity. So all of that stuff, God's rescuing 
his, the, the killing of the firstborn sons, the rescue through the Red Sea, the making of the covenant, all that together is very, very important to the history of Judaism. It's the most important thing. And so it's the most important holiday because it's kind of like our 4th of July and Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter and Memorial Day and wedding anniversary all wrapped up into one holiday. That's how significant it is. <clears throat> and it's always interesting to think about when Jesus comes to Jerusalem at the end of his life, he chooses what day to be there, what day to celebrate, what holiday. He could have chosen a couple of other really good ones as well. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That would have been a great day for him to come. He could have come on Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the new year. But instead, he intentionally chooses to come to Jerusalem and have his last meal, his last night with his disciples at Passover. And notice that it's all centered again on death. The death of the firstborn sons as the means of this rescue or deliverance with his last meal with them. And then look what happens in the middle of the meal. Look at verse 21. And as they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sad. They began to say to him one after another, surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. So, I mean, you can just imagine the grief and fear they are all feeling here. The son of man, Jesus, will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, rabbi. And he answered, you have said so. Now, again, we're going to pick up in the next couple of weeks the implications of this and kind of see how this unfolds. So I'm not going to say much about it now, but just notice again, this is very dark. This is all about death and one of the most tragic human experiences to have a friend betray you. But for today, I want to concentrate then on how our story ends, what happens in verse 26 and following. Look one more time there. Now, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the de that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Those words, those are probably, probably the most famous, some of the most famous words in the entire Bible. Every day, every week, millions of people throughout the world are reciting these and meditating on these words. And notice once again that they are centered on Jesus' death at his last meal together. When you and I have a dinner party, we don't usually talk about death at it very much, but this is what he chooses to do. His last supper with them, while they're celebrating the Passover, Jesus makes it all about his impending death, his sacrificial death, his voluntary giving of his own body to be broken and his blood to be spilled. And that broken body and that poured out wine, those are the elements of the Passover meal. But now Jesus infuses them with this totally deeper new meaning. So he takes the Passover and he affirms that this was God's work. And now he says that this is now a Christian meal that is about my own death. So it becomes what we call the Last Supper, which 
comes what we, come, what we call the Lord's Supper. And notice it all concentrates on Jesus' death. And we call these the words of institution because what he is instituting here or establishing here is, as he says, a new covenant. It is a covenant that comes, a new relationship that comes between God and humanity because precisely of Jesus' death. Now, Jesus didn't make up this idea that God was going to make a new covenant. Way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, this very important chapter, chapter 31, Jeremiah speaks about a time coming when God is going to make a new and different and final covenant with all of humanity through Israel and all of humanity being defined as, uh, Israel being defined, sorry, as all who believe in Jesus. Listen to what Jeremiah 31 says. This prophet of the Old Testament says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, not just the old one, but a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah, which again, the New Testament defines as all who believe in Jesus. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. That's the Exodus. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, my Torah, their instructions in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more." Okay, there's so much good here, more than we have time to unpack. Notice, for example, the emphasis on knowing God in the heart, something we've seen all throughout Matthew. But I don't want us to miss how Jeremiah ends this and what Jesus is saying as well. The same thing is highlighted. The same thing is emphasized. Look at it in the very last verse there again. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. That's exactly what Jesus says when he says, this body is broken, this blood is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And now, friends, let me ask you to pull out those two things I had you store away in your brain. Can you begin to see why I started talking about death and forgiveness? Because death, this thing that we don't like to think about, this thing that we avoid, that we understandably feel afraid of, that haunts our human existence, even though we try to deny it, Jesus doesn't shy back from talking about death at all and actually asks us to pay attention to death and forgiveness, this thing that we need, that we know we need. We need to be cleared and forgiven and restored. And these two things are brought together in this final night of Jesus's life, his final instructions to his disciples before his death. And I think we could sum it up this way. Jesus embraces death, our greatest human fear, so that we can receive forgiveness, our greatest human need. Let me say that again. Jesus embraces death, which is our greatest human fear, so that we can receive forgiveness, our greatest human need. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became an actual human just like us and willingly embraced his own real human death because it is only through his death that our greatest need, forgiveness, can be obtained. And whatever else 
you understand about Christianity and the Bible, we need to understand that at the core of the Bible's message, at the heart, the, the heart of why Jesus came into the world is our need for forgiveness and that this is accomplished through Jesus' death. Now, why do I say that forgiveness is our greatest human need? Because just like death, I think we often just, we just try to avoid this. We try to not own our stuff and not acknowledge it. But if you are honest, you will see that our lives are continually marked by brokenness and mistakes and sins. Sins of commission, wrong things we do, Sins of omission, good things we should do but fail to do them. Sins we're aware of and sins we're not even aware of. Right? Can you just be aware for a moment there's a lot of things that we do that are wrong that we don't even know? Sins that are public that everybody sees and sins that are only in secret. Sins with our bodies and sins in our minds. Sins against God and sins against other humans. Anger, hatred, jealousy, abuse, pornography, gossip, slander, stealing, arrogance, cutting words, selfishness, self-promotion, sexual perversion, resentment, drunkenness, spite, physical harm done to others, blaspheming God, self-aggrandizement, neglect of helping those in need. We could go on and on. As the Apostle John reminds us, anyone who, does, who says they have not sinned is a liar and the truth is not in him. And the reason, once we acknowledge that we are sinful, the reason we need forgiveness is because, friends, the only alternative to that, the only thing that is offered in all the other world, all the rest of the world and Eastern religions and all the other things that might be, the only thing that is the alternate to what, to forgiveness is karma. That is that ultimately what you've done will come back and you'll have to pay for it. The only thing that can break that is this radical idea, this radical reality that actually somehow you don't have to pay for the many wrong things you've done and are doing and will do. Somehow, if there be some way that we could actually be forgiven, that we could actually be released and not pay the penalty of the million things that you know you've done, the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment, the consequences. Is there some way that we could not just have to deal with karma, that we could not just have to wait for all these things to come back to us? Is there some way? And the way is forgiveness through Jesus' death. The retribution for my sins and your sins doesn't have to be your story. At the very heart, in the nuclear core of Christianity, is the beauty and power of forgiveness. And you and I can actually receive from God full forgiveness of all the shame and the guilt and the responsibility, shocking as it is, because there's a new covenant, a new kind of relationship available to us through Jesus' sacrificial death. Do you understand that? Can you begin to grasp how good this is? That the thing that you long for, the thing I long for, the thing we need in those moments as well as for our whole life and our death is not, we don't want karma, we don't want retribution, we don't want payback, we don't want fear of consequences. The only thing that will satisfy is actual forgiveness as remarkable and unexpected as it is. 
And I know that when we Christians think about forgiveness and talk about it, a lot of times we think of it in just sort of very legal standard, you know, what we call imputation is the technical term for it, that we were used to be guilty and now God says we're not guilty. But and that's true and that's absolutely essential. But I want you to understand this is much more personal than just this legal standing. Our forgiveness from God that's available through this new covenant, through Jesus' death, means we have a debt that has been canceled. Imagine you have this pile of debt and it's all of a sudden just gone. It means freedom from bondage to sin. It means the removal of our shame, all that shame that we feel that makes us hide. It means, it means the cleansing of your conscience. It means the restoration of relationships with God and with others. It means that this guilty charge against you is removed. It means our vitality can be renewed again. Go and read Psalm 51 and you'll see how David talks about how when we are in our sin and unconfessed sin, it just robs us of vitality. Forgiveness means deliverance from anxiety and all the consequences that may still happen in this earthly world, but ultimately will not be counted against us. Forgiveness means the wiping out of stains on your soul and heart. Forgiveness means the empowerment by God's own Holy Spirit residing in the Christian to live in new and different and life-giving ways, to, to not be trapped in those same things you've done over and over. Forgiveness means being filled with peace and confidence before God. It means being free to not keep having to strive to, to please God. It means being free to put down our masks. I don't mean your physical mask, though soon as well. Somebody after the service said that was confusing. Put down your masks. I mean your psychological mask, all the ways that we hide in our efforts and to instead actually rest. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you like to be free of constant striving to try to be good enough? Wouldn't that be nice? If you're not a Christian today, this message is for you. This fear of death that you naturally have, that we all have, and this inability that we all have as humans to actually deal with our guilt and our shame and the fear that comes from our sins, that has a solution that is more wonderful and powerful than you ever could have imagined. And maybe up to this point, you don't know what to think about Christianity. Maybe you're just accidentally came here, you thought this was roosters or something, and you came in today or something, or maybe you're invited by a friend, you don't know what to think. Maybe you have, you're not sure what you think about the Bible. Maybe you've had some Christians that were really good, not good examples or really wronged you. Whatever your situation is, let me say to you, that's okay. Don't let bad examples, don't let questions you might have blind you from the most important thing to understand today, that through Jesus's death, he embraces death our greatest human fear so that you and I can receive forgiveness, our greatest human need. And if you're a Christian today, this message is for you as well. If you're a follower of Jesus already, we all have to face the reality of our mortality and the guilt that we deal with every day and the shame. And I know for many of you, I know this, I've been a pastor a long time and just have been a human a long time that a lot of you really struggle to believe that God is for you. Maybe you believe, maybe you're seeking him, and you really struggle to believe that he really has and is willing to forgive you. 
as Eugene Peterson says, most Christians live every day thinking they're not very good at being Christians. Maybe that's you today. Maybe it's a message you received from your mother or your father that you're not worthy. Maybe it's abuse you experienced that has this dark psychological effect on you. Maybe it's failures as an adult and you just, you just feel the guilt and shame even though you want to be free from that. Today, I want to invite you to meditate anew on what Jesus says here. My body is broken. My blood is poured out. I'm making a new covenant that's not like an old covenant. It is a new covenant. And remember, Christians, when Jesus made this new covenant and offered it, all of your sins were still in the future and he still looked upon you knowing all of those and gladly made this covenant with you and invited you to come and find forgiveness. Jesus has embraced death, your greatest human fear so that you can receive forgiveness, your greatest human need. So what is embracing that look like tomorrow morning and Wednesday afternoon and Saturday night? When you, when you become aware of any sin, don't deny it. Don't try to hide. Don't try to self-justify. And don't let it just be vague and nebulous. I'm sorry, I might have done something that might have offended someone. Turn to God. Be specific about what you've done. And remember that your heavenly Father cares for you. And he is very glad to forgive you. Stop hiding. Stop avoiding, stop self-justifying because there's no life there. You will never find the freedom from guilt and shame until you are just honest before God about what you and I have done. Again, meditate on Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is an amazing way to help you repent. And then meditate on Psalm 32, both of those coming from David, where he explains what it means to be restored and forgiven. And if the sin that you're aware of means you've wronged someone else, which very often it does mean that, then with the strength that comes from knowing you're forgiven from God and you don't have to try to fix everything, just go to the person and apologize. (laughs) Ask for forgiveness, even as you've been forgiven. About 20 years ago, in a kind of former life, it feels like now. I was a youth pastor for many years in Northern Illinois, and it was a, a good season of ministry, and I saw God at work in the lives of many high school students. I'll never forget one girl. We'll call her Julie just to protect and honor her privacy. She was very involved in the youth group. She went away to a good college, got a great education, went on to graduate school, became a very successful, intelligent person. While she was in graduate school, she began a romantic relationship with someone who was not a Christian, and she began to just have, and she's a very intelligent young woman, and she began to have all kinds of questions about all sorts of theological things, et cetera. So we talked on the phone. She called me. And we talked, and I tried to give, you know, answers to all of her questions, and reasonable enough. But then I said, you know, Julie, At the end of the day, there's really a question I need to ask you. And I can give reasonable answers to all these things you might have a question about, but here's the question. What are you going to do about your sin? 
You might have intellectual questions about this or that or whatever, but you know, you know that you are a broken and sinful person. We all are. What are you going to do about that? I mean, in a loving way. Like, how do you handle that? What are you going to do now and when you die to deal with that fundamental human issue? And that's what I ask you, friends, today as well. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, I want to invite you to recognize that through Jesus embracing death, he offers us what we need more than anything, which is to actually be restored and find, again, a relationship of cleanliness, a relationship of freedom, a relationship of deliverance with God and with others. So I invite you, embrace this reality of Jesus' death for your forgiveness. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.